The scripture text for this morning is from Proverbs chapter 10, verses 31 and 32. Proverbs 10, 31 and 32. The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut off. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverse. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for such a sweet time of worship and for the power of the symbol of communion to us. I thank you for the fact, Lord Jesus, that though you were very God of very God, you did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But you are humble in your heart. You're humble in your mind. You're filled with mercy. You're filled with compassion. And so you emptied yourself and took on the form of a servant and became obedient to your Father all the way to death on a cross. Lord, the taproot of your life was deeply rooted in the soil of your Father. And you only said what you heard him saying. And you only did what you saw him doing. You were perfectly from the depths of your heart obedient to your Father. You were righteous all the way to the day when he said, take up your cross, go to Jerusalem and die for the sins of the world. And you did that, Lord. And you were buried in a grave and you were raised from that grave three on the third day from then, Lord. And you walked with your disciples for 40 days and then you were ascended where you are seated at the, seated at the right hand of your Father, even right now. Lord Jesus, from where you are ruling over the nations, where you reign as the high priest of heaven and the king of kings forever and ever, dispensing grace, preaching the gospel, revealing the glory of God to sinners like us. And I'm just so deeply grateful for who you are, Lord, for what you've done. It's impossible to comprehend what it took for us to be here, taking your name upon our lips and cherishing your name inside of our hearts. And I'm just so grateful for who you are. I pray, Lord, that you would come now and press your word deep into our lives. I pray that you would give grace where there needs to be grace. I pray that you would give a, a loving rebuke where there needs to be a loving rebuke. I pray that you would exalt your name and build up your people. And I thank you, Father, with all of my heart for what you will do through your word and by your spirit. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. We are continuing in our series in Proverbs this morning. We're in week 10 this morning. We have two more weeks to go after this, and then we'll be transitioning to another series that I'll actually write an email to you about this week. But so far, we've learned a few very important things that I just want to rehearse quickly and sort of set as a foundation, and then we'll talk about our topic for today. First of all, we have learned that wisdom, biblically speaking, is the skill of applying the knowledge of God to all of life. So I think that generally speaking, when we think of wisdom, we think of people who are able to say wise things, or maybe they always have the right advice at the right time. But biblically speaking, the picture of wisdom is that the character of God is displayed through our lives. The, the wise person, biblically speaking, is the one who knows the Lord and then shows the Lord through their actions by following in the will and the ways and the wisdom of God. Wisdom is imaging God in the practical things of life. It's just such an important lesson. Second thing we've learned is kind of bad news, and that's that all of us are prone away from godly wisdom. 
We are all, all prone to be our own gods, to be our own kings, to be our own lords, to be our own queens, to live our life the way we want to live our life, to push the wisdom of God aside in favor of any other wisdom, really, of our own, of some other hero that we have, of the world in general, whatever. It is the proneness of our heart to wander away from God. And the third thing, therefore, that we've learned is this, that if we're to be wise, we must believe in Jesus Christ. The only way to walk in wisdom is to walk with Jesus. There's just not another way. The truth of the matter is without the Lord's help, we will never be able to be wise. As I said, we're broken people. We're hurting people. And we're not even able to follow our own dictates over a period of time. We're not even able to walk in the ways of human wisdom over a period of time, much less divine wisdom. And so we simply must have the gracious sacrifice of Christ covering our lives. We simply must have the bright eyes of Christ giving us eyes to see his will and his ways and his wisdom. We simply must have the presence of Christ, the spirit of Christ dwelling in us to give us passion for his word, to give us power to do his will, to give us the ability and the the desire to do what he is calling us to do. And without Christ, we will never be wise. And so before I get into the subject for today, I want to say, as I said a few weeks ago, that unless we embrace Jesus, we will never be able to do anything that he's going to call upon us to do today. We simply must have him in our lives. There's no other way to put it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, two times that I see there, I think it's verses 21 and 24, Paul calls Jesus the wisdom of God. So as I said before, Jesus doesn't just give us wisdom, Jesus is wisdom. And so to have wisdom, we have to have Jesus. To walk in wisdom, we have to walk with Jesus. There's simply not another way. And so I want to plead with us this morning to believe in him and to cling to him, to follow him, to come out of the darkness, to take the taproot of our life out of the world and stick that taproot into the soil of Jesus Christ by his grace. That's really the call today. If you want to be wise, then believe in Jesus Christ. That is the beginning of wisdom, and I pray that all of us will do that at deeper and deeper levels today. With this as a foundation for our time in Proverbs, we've talked so far about God's wisdom with regard to anger, finances, the discipline of the Lord, the use of alcohol and the law of love. We've talked about caring for the poor. And then last week, Jason brought us a message on finding our true satisfaction in the Lord rather than in lust or in greed. Today, we're going to talk about the relationship between the wisdom that's in our hearts and the words that come out of our mouths. And as I begin, I want you to know that I have two agendas for the message today, two goals. First, as always, I just want us to understand the Word of God well so that we can apply it to our lives well. That's always the goal here, always the number one goal. Secondly, today, in the messages I brought to you from Proverbs so far, I've sort of taken a broad view. I've taken a bird's eye view. I've tried to look at what Proverbs teaches about a subject in a broad way. And today I want to switch that up a little bit and just press into one proverb as deeply as we can in the time that we have. Sometimes it's good to get a bird's eye view, and sometimes it's good to get a real close-up view. Sometimes it's good to see the broad scope of the Word of God, and at other times it's good to savor every single word of the Word of God. And so today we're going to do the second thing. We're going to look at the tree rather than the forest. We're going to look at one proverb rather than looking at a bunch of proverbs. And I want to begin, before I actually get into the proverb, 
I want to begin by giving you a few bits of advice about how you can meditate carefully on a single proverb and just get a lot out of it. There's a few principles you can learn that will help you to get a lot out of the Word of God. So I want to just give you three bits of advice today about that, and then we'll look specifically at Proverbs chapter 10, and I think you'll see how the counsel that I give relates to the meaning that we see in Proverbs. So three things. First of all, if you're going to be a good student of the Proverbs, and I hope that you really want to do that, then you have to understand that they were very carefully constructed, and they were not just sloppily thrown together. If you'll keep your finger in Proverbs 10, turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. It's the book right after the book of Proverbs, so if you'll go to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, I want to read just verse 9 today. In Ecclesiastes 12.9, it said of King Solomon, besides being wise, the preacher, which is King Solomon, he also taught the people knowledge. And now here's the, the key for us today. Weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. Beloved, that's a really important little sentence. When you go to the book of Proverbs, you need to realize that, that Solomon weighed everything that he wrote. He studied carefully everything that he wrote. And he arranged every single proverb with great care. And I would assume that the book of Proverbs is essentially the greatest hits of the Proverbs of Solomon. I'll bet you he wrote hundreds and hundreds more Proverbs that are not contained in the Bible. These are the ones that God felt were the right ones to be in the book. And what I'm saying mainly is that when we go to the book of Proverbs, we need to learn to assume that this stuff was not just sloppily thrown together. There is a lot of intention, a lot of thought behind it. So let me give you an example. One of my favorite Proverbs is Proverbs 27.14, just because it's so practical. It says, if a man loudly blesses his neighbor early in the morning, it will be taken as a curse. I love that proverb. (laughs) First of all, my wife would be like, you need to meditate on that proverb because I am a morning person. She is not. She's like, whoa, killer, back it off a little bit in the mornings. But in 1992, when Kim and I were at California Baptist University, we lived in this apartment area, and we had a neighbor that we really liked, spent a lot of time with Paul and Royce. We enjoyed them a lot, but Royce greeted us loudly in the morning across the courtyard, and it did not feel like a blessing, I'll tell you that. So this proverb really stuck out to me first in 1992, and I've giggled about it a lot over the years. But you know what? If you really press into the meaning of this proverb, there is so much there. Solomon is talking about how to use your mouth to bless in the way that God wants you to bless. How many times has the intention of your heart been to bless, but your friend takes it as a curse because of the way that you blessed them? There's a lot here that has to do with the love of God, the imaging of God, the love of our neighbors, the use of our mouth. It just seems like such a practical proverb, but believe me, beloved, there's oceans of grace there. There's oceans of meaning. Approach the book of Proverbs with the assumption that there's a lot there. Great care was taken with every single proverb. Big time lesson to me. Second, Understand that the Proverbs are a form of Hebrew poetry and that they're constructed, uh, they're constructed according to the features of Hebrew poetry. Now, there's whole books been written about this. You probably don't need to take your time to do that unless you want to become an expert in Hebrew poetry. But the one thing you really have to know about is what I told you about a couple weeks ago is called parallelism. 
Parallelism is the most important feature of Hebrew poetry by far. It affects Psalms, Proverbs, and even the prophetic books where they're, they're written in the form of poems. Parallelism means that the author states something in the first line and then he'll restate it in the second line in some way or other that relates to the first line. So they're always sort of make a statement and then essentially the second uh, line is a comment on the, on the statement. Sometimes these comparisons are complementary, where they basically say the same thing twice with different words. So if you look with me at Proverbs 18.7, there's an example of that there. In Proverbs 18, verse 7, Solomon writes, A fool's mouth is his ruin. That's the first line. Second line, and his lips are a snare to his soul. So if you look at that carefully, you can see that in the first line he makes a statement. In the second line, he's basically restating the same thing again to emphasize the point, to to say it in different words. And once your eyes open up to this, you'll see this kind of technique being used everywhere in the Psalms and the Proverbs and even in the prophetic books. It's very important to understand. Sometimes the author will state something in the first line, and then in the second line he says the opposite of what he said in the first line. We call this antithetical parallelism, where there's a contrast being made so that we'll learn something. And the Proverbs are full of this. So go back to chapter 10. In chapter 10, you'll see oodles of examples of this. That's a technical word, by the way, oodles. One I chose very carefully. We can just start at the beginning of the chapter, because the first three verses are antithetical parallelism. And it'll, it'll be clear to you what I mean. A wise son makes his father glad, so that's a good thing. But... So there's a contrast word. But a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. So again, you see a statement in the first line, the opposite in the second line. Verse 2, treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. So righteousness, walking with God, is what really profits. There's a contrast being made to teach us the truth. Verse 3, the Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. So you get the point. And if you gain eyes to see parallelism in the Bible, and especially in the book of Proverbs and Psalms, it will open up lots of doors of meaning to you because they're very intentionally making comparisons, this thing with that thing. It's not random. It's not thoughtless. It's very carefully put together. It's not super complicated, pretty easy to understand, but it is super important, so keep that in mind. Third thing, and this might be a little challenging and time-consuming for those of you who are up to the challenge, But know that in order to understand poetry in any language, you really have to study it in its original language. This is probably true of any kind of serious literature, but with poetry, it's particularly important because poetry is put together so carefully according to the dictates of a certain language that when you translate it, and you can translate it, but when you translate it, something significant is lost. And often when you see people who are good translators, let's say the song A Mighty Fortress is Our God, that's written in German. Well, someone took that and put it into English. There are some significant differences between the German and the English because the languages function differently. So you can translate, but something is lost. And when it comes to poetry, if you really want to understand the root, you got to try to get back to the original language. Now, to my knowledge, there are only two people at this church who know Hebrew. That's me and Jason Ruzek. So it might seem a little bit discouraging to you that I just told you you have to study the Bible in a language that you don't understand. That's the bad news. But the good news is this. 
We live in a day where there's all kinds of tools that help the common English-speaking reader of the Bible to access, to some degree, the original languages of the Bible. We are living in an amazing time in this way, actually. Just about two or three weeks ago, Tyndale House, which is a major college at Cambridge University in England, they released a resource called stepbible.org. S-T-E-P-Bible.org. I really want to encourage you to go check this out. www.stepbible.org. And if you forget that, just write me. I'll send you the link. I spent an hour or so the other day poking around on the site, and it is just one of the most amazing, easy-to-use sites that will help you press deeply into the Word of God, and it's totally free. There you can access the meaning of Hebrew words, you can see the order in which words appear, and all of that stuff. And I really want to encourage you to go check that out. If for some reason you don't like that site, there's another site that I like a lot called blueletterbible.org. It's uh, Blue Letter Bible is after the sort of the color of those links, so just blueletterbible.org. There's a lot of tools there as well. But whatever you choose, I pray and I hope that each of you will become serious students of the Bible, use the unbelievable tools that are available to us in the first world, and press deeply into the Word of God. I really hope that you'll do that. And as you do that, I just want to offer you one bit of caution, one bit of wisdom that I was given when I first started studying Greek in the fall of 1992. Our professor got up and told us that after this year, you're going to know enough Greek to open up your Bible and read, and the problem is you're going to think you're an expert, and I got a newsflash for you, you're not. So don't get up in front of people and start acting like you're an expert in Greek and Hebrew and all this stuff. This was his counsel to us, and I've tried to take that counsel for all these years, even though I've continued to study the language year upon year upon year. And I just want to say to you, press hard to know words behind words and all that stuff, but please don't go to community groups. Don't go to your families talking as though you're an expert in Greek or Hebrew because you're not. So here's the wisdom. Work hard at it, but stay humble. That's all that I'm saying. Go for it. Use the tools, but know that we all need humility. In fact, I've been studying Greek pretty intensely since 1992. Every single year, I work through another kind of grammar. I try to deepen my knowledge of Greek. And just last March, I was with Don Carson at Trinity Seminary taking a course on 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And if you think you're really smart about anything, just go hang out with Don Carson for a little bit. He'll really humble you. So even after all these years of study, he said some things about Greek that I had just never heard and just helped me remember to be a humble student of the Word of God. And that's all I'm saying. Work hard and remain humble. If for some reason you're just not wired to care about Greek and Hebrew or you don't have the time or you for whatever reason just don't want to go there, I do want to tell you that you have the ability to study deeply the Word of God in your native language. If you have three or four or five good English translations, you can do very good, fruitful study. And I'm not trying to discourage you away from that today. I'm just saying that when it comes to poetry, when it comes to really understanding Proverbs, it's helpful to access the original languages if you can. But if you can't, study your English Bibles, depend upon the Holy Spirit, and he will help you. With that, I want to turn our attention now to Proverbs 10, 31 and 32, and I want to consider what the Lord is saying there today. Let me just read the proverb again for you. Two verses, but one proverb. The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut off. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverse. So applying what we know about parallelism, I created a simple chart that helps us see the relationship between verse 31 and 32. Let me back away a little bit so that you all can see that. 
Let me just explain the chart to you a little bit. On the left-hand side of the chart, the A stands for the first part of verse 31. So where it says, the mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, comma, that's the first clause. And many Proverbs are constructed like this, sort of an A, B, and then in the second line, A and B. Um, Well, in this case, though, I have the lines being A, B, and A, and B. You'll see there in uh, the the A and B are repeated twice in the chart because verse 31 is line A, line B, and then verse 32 is line A and line B, and they go together. Solomon wrote them to be compatible with each other. Across the top of the chart, you'll see the numbers 1, 2, and 3. They stand for the elements that Solomon is comparing inside the proverb. There's three of them in this case. Element 1 is the instrument of the mouth or the lips or the tongue. Element two is the righteous who are, or the wicked who are using the instrument of the mouth. And element three contrasts the root and the fruit of the righteous and the wicked. So let's just sort of take these elements one at a time and see what we find. Looking a little more carefully at the first element, we see that Solomon poetically wrote of the mouth and then the tongue and then the lips and then the mouth. He wrote of the whole, the part, the part, and the whole. I spent some time thinking about that. I don't think it really affects the meaning of it a lot, but I think it shows you the beauty, the symmetry, the poetry, the care that was taken in putting this proverb together. It's not an accident that it goes whole, part, part, whole. He did that on purpose, and to me, it's just something beautiful to see. Looking at element number two, we see here the contrast between the righteous and the wicked, and as we press into what this means, As we press into who the righteous are and who the wicked are, we come very close to the heart of what Solomon is talking about in this proverb. The Hebrew word for the word righteous is the word sadiq. And the word sadiq refers to people who are legally and morally innocent before God. So I don't know what you think of when you hear the word righteous, but in your mind, you need to get in, your, in, in the picture of your mind a courtroom, and there's a person standing before God, the judge, and they are legally and morally innocent before him. For God, that is what it means to be righteous. And because they're innocent, they have fellowship with God. They're walking with God. They're enjoying God. They're being with God. Sometimes we think about the righteous as a sort of bunch of holier-than-thou people who got it all together, and they're looking down on others. But that's not a biblical view of righteousness at all. In the Bible, the idea of the righteous is that they're right with God and they're enjoying fellowship with God. The mouth of the righteous, the mouths of those who are walking with the Lord will overflow with wisdom. On the other hand, the wicked are those who are legally and morally guilty. And here again, the the Hebrew word means just that. You have to see a courtroom. Sometimes this word is actually translated criminal. Because it means someone who's been found guilty. So they're standing before God, and legally speaking, morally speaking, they are not innocent. They are actually declared guilty. They have rejected God either by their convictions or with their actions. And they're living by the wisdom of the world or of the flesh or both. And for me, it's very important that we understand that defined in this way, The wicked actually might look very moral and very nice, very approachable, very helpful from the outside. They might, uh, sometimes I think when we hear the word wicked, we think of people who are severely wicked. We think of people like Charles Manson. We think of folks who are doing horrible things, wicked things. I mean, for us, the word wicked is an extreme word. We don't really use that very often to talk about people that we know. But in the Bible, it's a broader idea. 
In the Bible, the, the broader idea is that the wicked are those who reject the will and wisdom and ways of God. It's a really important thing to understand, beloved. Those who reject the wisdom, the will, the ways of God are the wicked according to the Bible, and they will suffer the consequences thereof. Adam and Eve, when they were in the garden, believe me, they looked very innocent. They looked kind. They were probably gentle people. They were probably nice people. But biblically speaking, they were wicked because they rejected the will of God for the will of another. And rejecting God is the heart of wickedness in the sight of God. And so in our own day, we have to sort of adjust our way of thinking and understand that many people that we see who are moral, even who do very good things in the sight of God, are actually wicked because they have rejected God. And so since their root is not in God, the fruit of their life can't be of God. The truth of the matter is that no matter how nice folks are, when they reject God, they choose darkness. To reject God, therefore, is wickedness. So in this proverb, on the one hand, we're talking about people who are walking with the Lord, talking with the Lord, learning from the Lord, and they're right with the Lord. And on the other hand, we're talking about people who have rejected God either through their belief system or just through their actions. And somehow or other, they are not walking with God, even if they claim to be, and therefore the wisdom of God is not pouring out of our lives, which leads us to the third element in this chart, the, the root and the fruit of the righteous and the wicked. Regarding the righteous, look at the first part of verse 31. It says there that the mouth of the righteous brings forth, or more literally, that word means to bear the fruit of. So the mouth of the righteous bears the fruit of godly wisdom. An apple tree bears apples, right? Kim and I have two apple trees. Every year it bears apples. doesn't bear oranges, doesn't bear pears. It bears apples. Cherry trees bear, cher- bear cherries every year. We also have a cherry tree, and it always bears cherries. And the person who is walking with the Lord, the person who is in right relationship with the Lord, their mouth will bear the fruit of wisdom, just in the same way that an apple tree bears apples. It is the natural overflow of his or her life. Now, the first part of verse 32 tells us why this is so. There, Solomon writes, that the lips of the righteous, which is just a way of saying that the speech of the righteous, they know what is acceptable to the Lord, or a little more literally, they know what's pleasing to the Lord. They know what makes God's heart happy. The righteous are walking with God by grace. They're drawing near to God. They're listening to God. When he speaks through his word, they have ears to listen. They have a heart to receive. They're eager to learn from him to feed on him, and he's massaging his wisdom into their lives, and they're walking with him moment by moment, day by day, and then, of course, they bear the fruit of the wisdom that he is teaching them. It's not so much that they're wise in themselves, beloved, it's that they're tapped into the wisdom of God. The taproot of their life is deep in the soil of the God of wisdom, and therefore, their mouth bears the fruit of wisdom. It's just a natural process in this way. The speech of the wicked, on the other hand, is exactly the opposite. Look at the second part of verse 31. There we see this this statement that the perverse tongue will be cut off, or more literally, it means to be cut out. And this word for uh, wicked, the word for wicked, you'll see doesn't appear in verse 31, but because you understand parallelism, you know that Solomon is thinking of the wicked because he mentions them in verse 32. And here he says of them that their tongue is perverse. 
the root of that word, this is really interesting to me. I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the word perverse. I tend to think of things that I don't think are actually in mind here. The root of that word means to turn around. So the, the tongue of the wicked is perverse in the sense that it's twisted. It's turned upside down. Imagine someone whose tongue is upside down and they can't turn it right side up. That's what's in mind here. The tongue of the wicked is perverse in the sense that it's upside down. It sees everything that God sees in the wrong way. It sees darkness as light and lightness as dark. It sees up as down and down as up. It sees good as evil and evil as good. It sees perverse things as beautiful things and beautiful things as perverse things. So the tongue of the wicked is perverse in the sense that it's twisted. Its logic is upside down. And the Bible says that this kind of tongue, no matter how powerful it is in a given age or in a given situation, will be cut off. It will be stopped. It will be destroyed. Its desires and designs will come to an end. This is the pronouncement of God about the ways of the wicked. And the second part of verse 32 tells us exactly why this is so. There, Solomon says that the mouth of the wicked knows what is perverse. They know what's twisted. They know what's turned upside down. And that's all that they know. There's some really nice people right now who are arguing for gay marriage. And their tongue is absolutely twisted upside down. They're seeing up is down. Down is up. Black is white. White is black. Good is evil. Evil is good. This is so nice, but their logic is twisted. you know why? The taproot of their life is out of God and into the world. And when your root is in the soil of the world, you will bear the fruit of the world. You have no choice. An apple tree, if it's living, must bear apples. And a wicked person will bear the fruit of the twisted logic of the world. And in the mind of God, it's wicked. It's very wicked. So Solomon says, the mouth of the righteous brings forth, it bears the fruit of what? Of godly wisdom. It can't help but do it. But the perverse or the twisted tongue will be cut off. The lips of the righteous, they know what's acceptable to the Lord, what's pleasing to His heart. But the mouth of the wicked, all they know is what is perverse. So now, as we step back from the details of what Solomon has said and just think to ourselves, what, what's the punch here? What's he really after? What's he trying to teach? Well, I've come up with four ways of saying it. Usually Sunday by Sunday, I choose one of these four ways or how many other ways I come up with. But today, I just wanted to present you all the different ways that I could think of in my mind to kind of just summarize what Solomon is really getting at. So here's four different things. We can say that the mouth overflows with what the heart knows. Where your heart is dwelling is where your mouth will be speaking. Or we can say that the, con- the, the words of the mouth reveal the content of the heart. Or even at a deeper level, the fruit of our speech reveals the root of our knowledge. That, I think, is my favorite way of saying it. The fruit of our speech reveals the root of our knowledge. The fruit of our words shows who we're walking with day by day, who we're listening to. 
And the fruit of our words are not just the content of our words, but also the tone of our words, the way we say what we say. And when we're tapped deeply into the gracious heart of God, our speech overflows in such a way that it reveals God. Or we could choose the words of Jesus Christ himself, who I believe his mind was steeped in the Proverbs. And I think when he said this, he had many Proverbs in mind. The Lord said in Matthew twelve thirty four, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The words of the mouth are simply the overflow of the heart. This is what we're being taught today. Don't pay attention to the fruit, beloved. Pay attention to the root of your life. If you put the root in the right place, the fruit will come in the right way. If you try to just be a legalist and focus on all the fruit stuff, get the fruit right. Someone said, Kevin, I don't know if it was you or, or, or Jason, if it was you, but someone had talked about taping fruit to the tree. <laughs> You can't just duct tape fruit to a tree and call it a fruit tree, right? Fruit has to come from the inside out, so we focus on the root, not on the fruit. Where is the root of our lives? If our life is rooted in Christ, our fruit will flow from Christ. It's really that simple. I think that's the powerful, potentially life-shaping wisdom for today. I pray that we'll all have ears to hear. I want to take some time now and offer you a few points of application, and I think we just absolutely have to start at this place. Given everything that I've said, to me this was the immediate and necessary conclusion that Jesus Christ is the righteous one of Proverbs ten thirty-one to 32. Who is the righteous? Well, there really is only one, and his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one who perfectly enjoys never-ending communion with the Father, right? He's the only one that not even for a millisecond dipped from absolute infinite intensity of love and joy with his Father, the only one. Jesus Christ is the only one who is perfectly, legally, and morally innocent before God the Father, not by grace but by his nature, He doesn't need grace to be forgiven. He doesn't need to be forgiven. He is perfectly in his nature, innocent, righteous before God the Father. Jesus is the only one who perfectly loves the Father and talks with him and walks with him and listens to him all the days of his life. Jesus is the only one who perfectly knows what's pleasing to the Father and acceptable to the Father. Jesus is the only one who bears the fruit of wisdom and only the fruit of wisdom. Beloved, even those of us who know Jesus, and even those, you think about the body of Christ around the world, even those who in God's eyes are the most advanced in Christ, we're all still a mixed bag of fruit, aren't we? I am not bearing perfect godly fruit. I am not. There's a bunch of ugly, dead fruit in my life that needs to get cut off and thrown away because I'm not perfectly formed in Christ. Jesus is the only one who bears perfectly righteous fruit and only perfectly righteous fruit. Beloved, he is the righteous one of Proverbs 10 because he's the only one who is righteous. Period and end of story. If you don't read Jesus into that proverb, you will never be able to understand the proverb. You will be crushed by that proverb. You try to live that without Christ, and I promise you, it will crush you. But praise be to God. I believe the Lord has himself in mind here. So I see four implications for our lives from this. First of all, as I said at the beginning of the message, if we're to be wise, we must believe in Jesus Christ. There's just simply no way to progress in wisdom without clinging to the one who is wisdom. There's no way to be righteous unless we're clothed in him who is our righteousness. 
We must look to Jesus, cling to him, seek him, receive grace from him, learn to love him, to enjoy him, to walk with him, to talk with him, to be forgiven by him, to be changed by him, to be lovingly confronted by him, to just do life with Jesus Christ. The only way for us to be in communion with God is if we have a relationship with Jesus. And so I beg of you again to believe in Christ, who is life, who is wisdom, who is light. And if you already believe, I encourage you, I urge you to seek him all the more. Just lay down everything to have Christ. If we're to be wise, we must know Jesus Christ. And second thing, if we're to be wise, we must draw near to Christ alone. And what I mean is privately, individually, with just us and Jesus alone. And I think that the way we do this is I've got nothing profound to say. I've said it to a, a million times and I'll say it another million if God gives me life. The way you draw near to Christ is by opening up your Bible, reading your word and the, reading his word and the power of his spirit. You let him talk to you. He's not just asking us to check off a to-do list. Oh, yep, read the Bible today. Off I go. He's asking us to, have, to spend some time with him, to connect heart to heart with our Father. The way we connect with Christ is letting the word of Christ dwell richly inside of us. Paul said that in Colossians 3, 15 or 16. He said, let or allow the word of Christ to dwell richly inside of you. He doesn't want it to dwell superficially in us. He doesn't want it to dwell occasionally in us. He wants the word of Christ to saturate our lives to dwell in us deeply, to dwell in us powerfully, to dwell in us significantly, to dwell in us in a way that shapes our life. And if you want to draw near to Christ, you have to draw near to him by his word. I'm telling you, the sweetest moments of my life are those early morning times when, as I told you, I am wide awake in the mornings. I wake up like at 100%. So, And when I wake up, I cannot wait. It's kind of weird to me. I'm like totally unconscious, 100 miles an hour, just like that. And Kim's looking at me like, what happened to you? Who are you? But I take that energy to Jesus, and I go spend time with him. And there's just nothing sweeter in my life than that private time with Christ. And I urge you, beloved, I really urge you, if you want to be wise, then draw near to Christ day by day. It's not about legalism. It's not about duty. It's about love. It's about connecting with your Father. Second thing, or third thing, if we're to be rise, wise, we must draw near to Christ together, not only alone, but also together. Life in Christ is life together, and his wisdom is often shed abroad in our lives when we gather together. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Kevin and Jason Ruzek and I were rejoicing together about how sometimes God withholds certain insights about his word or certain insights about our lives until we gather together. It really seems that God is pleased not to speak about certain things until his people are in the same room seeking him together. And I think that the reason that is is because he doesn't want to just give us good stuff to think about. He wants to bond our lives with each other deeply, profoundly. So of course God speaks to us in our private times. Of course that's true. But there are other things that he will only speak when we're gathered together. And so if we want to grow in Christ together, if we want to be wise in Christ together, then we must seek Christ together. And I pray that we will do that. Fourth thing, I just want to give one more little piece of wisdom here. It's the wisdom that God was speaking to my heart all week and I want to pass on to you. It's just the wisdom of grace. The sentence that I would put before you is this, that progress is a process that requires patience. Progress in Christ is a long, lifelong process that requires lots and lots of patience. So as believing people, our common goal is for the heart of Jesus to be our own heart. 
I sure hope that's your goal. I hope your goal in life is that everything that makes up the heart of Christ, that you desire, you long for that to be your heart, that everything he thinks you want to think, everything he feels you want to feel, everything he says you want to say, everything he does you want to do, you want to be like Jesus Christ. That is to be our common goal, and I pray that more and more and more it will be. And so if together we desire to be like Jesus, then we must be gracious to each other through Jesus Christ. We should be fellow soldiers in this fight and not antagonists, not judges, not adversaries. As partners in this journey, we need to understand that not one of us is all the way there with Jesus inside of our hearts. And so there's not one of us that's going to be all the way there with him with the use of our words and with our mouth, right? I'll bet you there might have been something that came out of some of your mouths this morning that maybe even surprised you. Sometimes I get in grumpy moods and I say stuff and I'm just like, who is this guy? Or I'll spend an hour with Jesus, you know? It's like really enjoying his presence, pressing into the word. I'll come out of that time and just bite my wife. It's like, why do I do that? It's because my heart is still messed up. I still need Jesus. And so because of that, I think we have to learn to be gracious to ourselves and to one another. We have to have grace. None of us is fully formed in Jesus. None of our words are fully formed for the glory of Jesus. So all I'm saying is let's press on to let the root of our life be in Christ, to let the words of our mouth display that fact but let's be really gracious to each other, see each other as partners rather than adversaries. Every single success that we have in this life, especially with the words that we use, it's just a pure testament to the grace of Christ. Amen? If you say something that's helpful to somebody, that impacts somebody, Jason said something in his sermon last week that absolutely changed somebody's life. They contacted me this week to tell me what happened in their lives. Totally, it's a mind, like a life-altering thing, before and after. One sentence, Jason said. I'm telling you, beloved, that's pure grace. That's the grace of Jesus pouring through the life of our brother, Jason. And then when we mess up, when we fail, it just becomes another opportunity for grace. That's it. It's grace, grace, grace. That's what life in Christ is about. So here's the message for today. Take the taproot of your, cri- of your life and by his grace, put it into Christ. Sink your taproot as deeply as you can into Christ. Let his soil be your pleasure and you will bear his fruit. Let's pray now that Jesus would help us with this. Well, Lord, I, in my own heart, in my own mind, I feel so clear about the wisdom that's here. It seems simple. It seems powerful. It seems inviting to me. But I know my heart. I know my flesh. And I know that part of me doesn't want what you want. And I'm assuming others are like me. And so I pray for grace now that we would continue to want what you want. That we would continue to walk in your way. That we would pursue you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. That we would listen to you by listening to your word. That we would seek your power by begging for your Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would enable us to embrace your words and apply them to our lives. Oh Jesus, make us a wise people. People who know what it means to walk in the will and in the ways and in the wisdom of our Lord and Savior. We love you so much for this word, and we pray now for grace to live it out. In your mighty name, we give you our thanks and praise. Amen.